You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Brad Meltzer, who's the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Inner Circle, The Book of Fate, and nine other bestselling thrillers, including The Tenth Justice, The First Council, The Millionaires, and The President's Shadow. His latest novel, The Escape Artist, debuted at number one on the bestseller list. In addition to his fiction, Brad is one of the only authors to ever have books on the bestseller list for nonfiction, History Decoded, Advice, Heroes for My Son and Heroes for My Daughter, children's books, I Am Amelia Earhart and I Am Abraham Lincoln, and even comic books, Justice League of America, for which he won the prestigious Eisner Award. He is also the author of the new nonfiction book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, which is now also on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. So welcome, Brad, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. I appreciate it. Great to be here. So you're, you're, when, I, when I told people that uh, I was going to have you on the show, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, I love his novels. And in many cases that you're known primarily for your best-selling novels. But I mentioned in the bio, you've written nonfiction as well in the past. What do you like more? Do you like to hunker down and do hardcore research on nonfiction? Or do you like to kind of get in your own head and write novels? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's like asking which of your kids you love most, right? There's just each one of them has something amazingly rewarding and beautiful about them. When, when I do a novel, um, it's very different than nonfiction. In, in a novel, if I don't like where the plot's going, I change it. I don't like the character, I kill them. Um, you know, and, and there's nothing like a blank page, right? Where you're truly, I mean, I have an editor who makes sure I don't take the train so far off the tracks. But basically, uh, you know, it's a house you build with your own hands. You know, there, there's nothing else there but those characters, that world, that universe. And I love that part of it. There's just there's something very personal about it. Uh, on the nonfiction side, though, the reward is, you know, people have re- re- responded to this book. And they're like, oh, it's so great. They're not really responding to my writing. It's that this story is so amazing because it really happened. And that's just something, you know, no matter how great I can make a thriller, there's nothing that is more stunning, surprising, or impactful than just that fact that this person on this day in 1776 did this incredible thing that changed the whole world because it's real. That's, that's just amazing. So each of them get their own reward, and, and each of them are equally hard for that reason. When, when you have nonfiction, 
can't change it. Sometimes I just got to live with it. There's a, you know, there's plenty of moments you'll see in the first conspiracy where we just are very honest about it. And we're like, you know, we don't want to guess here. No one knows what happened. Anyone that tells you they know what happened is a liar. And um, this, this is just one of the question marks in the mystery. Well, that's what's really interesting about this. I mean, we have a lot of authors on this podcast who talk about writing nonfiction about recent intelligence history. And intelligence history, you know, in its own right, is incredibly difficult to do, mainly because of things like classification. But now we're talking about 242 years ago, almost 243 years ago, where there's a whole other element of difficulty in finding documentation and evidence and research, is that not only is it an intelligence topic, but it's an intelligence topic that's over two centuries old. So how the hell did you do research for a book like this? Yeah, and, and let's just talk about that. You know, I found, I found the story for this book in the place where all the best stories always hide, which is in the footnotes. And I was scouring through the footnotes because I just do, because only the nerds read the footnotes, right? And I'm just one of those people. And I saw, you know, it's a secret plot to kill George Washington. I'm like, is this real? Is this nonsense? Is this something on the internet? And... It was true, just to be set it all up. In 1776, there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington got wind of it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows. He took one of the main co-conspirators, and he hanged them in front of 20,000 people. It was the largest public execution at that point in North American history. And I couldn't shake the story. Five years went by. I actually used it in one of my thrillers on a page five years ago but I still couldn't shake it. And five years go by, I'm like, I, I would find myself in spare time just kind of Googling it and trying to figure it out and not finding much. And I eventually went to a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said, do you know this story? And I remember him saying, I know the story. He said, but here's the thing about the story. It's a story about George Washington's spies. And he told me, you can find exactly how many slaves George Washington owned. You'll never find all of his spies. That by its nature, he said to me, Brad, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. And he said, but you got to try because if you love it, you'll get a book out of it. If not, then, you know, you'll have an adventure. And, and I love having an adventure. So that was our starting point. And my first thing I did is I called my friend, Josh Mensch. Uh, we did a TV show. Some people might know me from, um, from our History Channel TV shows like Decoded and Lost History. And on, on Lost History, we'd search for lost historical artifacts. We went searching for the 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at ground zero. It went missing. We actually were able to find it. Uh, we told the story on, on camera about it. And four days later, a man walked into a fire station in Washington State and said, I saw the show Lost History for the 9-11 flag. This is actually the missing flag. I want to return it. And we spent the better part of a year authenticating it with the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. I remember he said to me that this flag is now more authenticated than most Rembrandts in museums. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with the Rembrandts in the museums, right? Because <laughs> you're like, what? But the, and I got all, you know, we were able to unveil it on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 museum. It's currently on display there. Incredible, you know, moment in, in my own personal life. And everyone was like, oh, thank you, Brad, for what you did. But it was never me. It was so many people worked on this show. My name's on the head of, you know, above the title, but only a full thing It's a one-person show. And the other person who was amazing in research and writing on that show was our executive producer, a guy named Josh Mensch. And the first thing I did 
to answer your question is I went to Josh and said, I, I want to research something that's going to be really hard to research. We're going to go back to 1776 and try and figure out Washington spies. You want to come down the rabbit hole with me? Well, if people haven't seen that show, Lost History, it's certainly available. You can find it online in lots of different places. And this is a, this is a self-serving announcement because I was a talking head on one of the episodes with the lost D-Day footage from the, the beaches side. Indeed of, you were. Yeah, so please go look that up. It's a fascinating show. So um, let me ask you uh, one thing that I find really fascinating about this. I, I certainly know a bit about George Washington, but those out there might have some misperceptions about Washington, certainly from the myth of Washington from American history from school and the idea that he was some grand Napoleonic or, or Klaus-Witzian military genius. And as you lay out in the book very well, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. He's really making this up as he goes along. And even if he did know a little bit of what he was doing, he had to make up everything from scratch. And anyone who's been in the military understands that in a chain of command around for now 243 years, well, he created that in the United States Army. Yeah, and let's talk about, I mean, you know, George Washington at the beginning of the war, first of all, had his own private bodyguards. And he went to all of his top regiments and said, give me your four best men. He wanted the best of the best. They wanted what they called back then drilled men. And drilled men were certain height, certain build, even certain like level of virtue. And Washington himself personally, personally, went through and narrowed that list down to about 50 men who became what they called the general's guard. Some called them the commander's guard. But the name that stuck was an old British term. It was called the lifeguards because one of their jobs was to guard George Washington's life. And these were the men who turned on George Washington. These were eventually the ones who, who went against him. But what you see when George Washington gets wind of it is, as you said, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. We, we take George Washington today. We take all of our heroes today. We dip them in granite. We build statues of them. And then we worship. And, and we do a disservice to history and to those people because every hero you look up to, whether it's George Washington or Rosa Parks or Dr. King or someone in your personal life or someone you work with in your agency, every single one of those people had a moment where they were scared and they were terrified and didn't know if they were going to be able to pull it off. And they kept marching forward. And it was no different for George Washington. Uh, George Washington at the time, uh, as you said, like the first thing he does when he gets control of the military is he starts buying books on how to be a better commander on strategy for battles. And that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. He's, you know, the first thing he says is, I'm, I'm just worried I'm not going to be up to the task. And what he does when he gets wind of this plot is, is he builds, helps eventually what becomes his own um, amazing secret committee. And the secret committee, it starts a little bigger, but eventually narrows down to three men. It's led by John Jay, puts John Jay in charge, who later becomes the first Supreme Court justice in the United States. Uh, it's also Governor Morris and Philip Livingston. So these three are the trusted ones. They have the secret committee and they're literally going in the middle of the night. They're knocking on doors, taking out suspects, interrogating them. And what they're doing in the process is they're actually building America's first counterintelligence agency. And I know I'm sure, you know, on your podcast and anywhere else, or even in the spy museum, you know, the, you, there's always, they always say the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. And that's in a formal sense, but in a real sense to me, it actually all, the precursor really goes back to this moment. It goes back to this moment where you see uh, George Washington and his secret committee trying to figure out all this. And in fact, as you know, in CIA headquarters right now, 
in Langley, Virginia, there's a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. Yeah, and just even a precursor to the Jay coming to the scene. And I think that if we went out on the street and asked 100 random Americans on the street, like, who is the epitome of traitors in the United States? Benedict Arnold's name would come up probably a majority of the time. But Arnold certainly doesn't play a role here because his treachery comes later than the book is actually set. But there's another guy that predates Arnold that really had a massive impact on Washington's view on counterintelligence. And that, of course, is Dr. Church. Yeah, let's talk about Benjamin Church. He's, um, and this is, and I think I love how you put that in terms of Benedict Arnold. Um, and it, because we do, like Benedict Arnold has become this, this curse word, right? Like you say, you say that, uh, you, you know, you almost say if you're Benedict Arnold, that you're a traitor by, by nature. That's just what traitors come to mean. But there is actually a guy named Benjamin Church who is this Harvard-educated, he's the personal physician of John Adams. Um, and he, I don't want to ruin the theme, so I'll, I'll hint around it, but what basically happens is he's, he's one of the trusted inner circle. And what George Washington, what they eventually find out to simplify the story, just as we're talking, is... Um, there's a woman and there's a secret note found and they're like, what's this note? Who's, you know, who wrote this note? And they figure out it's a secret coded note that this woman who's a prostitute has. And George Washington immediately is like, you know, what's in the note? Hey, what, you know, Benjamin Church, what's in this note that you have? And, and, and they realize they can't even crack the note because it's in secret code. They got to pull in code breakers and they don't even have any code breakers. That's how rudimentary our counterintelligence operation is at the beginning of the war. They literally don't even have code breakers on staff that they're going around trying to find them. And when they crack the actual code, they realize that Benjamin Church is a big fat liar. And he's one of the great first people who betrays George Washington and makes George Washington realize that, yes, you need a great offense in battle. You need to have a great military in that offense. But what you also need is you need a great defense because you don't know sometimes what's coming for you. The betrayal of Benjamin Church is uh, one of those ones that teaches him that you need intelligence because you need to know who's coming for you before they come. You need to know who's on your side. You need to know who isn't. Yeah, and, and you're right. The, the story is it's fascinating. It's incredibly you know, well-written and, and easy to understand. Um, but really what comes down to it is it wasn't good counterintelligence that helped them catch church. It was blind luck in many cases. This is not- it's Total dumb luck. It's total dumb luck by the prostitute who just is like gives up the goods. One thing I found really fascinating about this book, it, it's very easy to, to make the British the bad guys, to kind of create like this big, huge, faceless enemy. And, and, and there obviously there are some books about the Revolutionary War that might pull out Howe or Cornwallis or one of the generals. But I think you, you kind of personify the British in, like, to a main enemy. And that guy is William Tryon, who is the governor of New York. Uh, it's, it's, this book is as much about him as it is about Washington. And certainly for, for any student of intelligence history, Tryon's more interesting because he's much, much better at this than Washington is. Uh, this is why I, I love that we have actually like time to pull this apart because usually I can't get into it. Everyone just wants to know who's killing Washington. But you hit it right on the head. Uh, William Tryon is, is the governor of New York under British rule. And what you see happen in 1775 is we're like, we don't want British rule, so we don't need your services anymore, Governor. And, and Tryon starts getting worried. He's very paranoid that they're going to come kill him. They're going to take him and arrest him. And so he 
races out and goes to his boat, basically a place called the Duchess of Gordon. He goes to one of his ships in the harbor. And on this ship, uh, from starting in 1775, William Tryon wants one thing. The governor wants one thing. He wants his old job back. He wants power. He's like, and, and one of my favorite scenes in the book is right at the beginning of the, when George Washington comes to New York City for the first time as a commander of the military, there's this huge parade that happens. And as this parade is going on, everyone's cheering the arrival of Washington. There's a 19-year-old kid in the crowd who's cheering named uh, Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, you feel that moment of history being made. But the part that we don't know is on that same day, Governor Tryon also came back to New York. And there was also supposed to be a big parade planned for him. His event is, it gets kind of gets kick the second fiddle because they're all cheering for this guy George Washington and you can see almost like a James Bond villain like if I wrote this guy you know who's watching this happen and seeing his enemy George Washington come to town my editor would say like come on man it's a little too Bond villain like he's just missing a cat that he's stroking and unleashing the laser sharks right but the moment is beautiful because you literally see George Washington and William Tryon Governor Tryon on this collision course, both of them arriving in New York City on the same day. Both of them want the opposite of each other. They are truly the unstoppable force and the immovable object heading for each other. And as you said, Tryon goes to this ship, escapes to his ship, and spends the better part of a year plotting and planning, how do I get my power back? And what he immediately does is he launches his own counterintelligence and intelligence operation. He starts figuring out who can we turn? Who's out there that's, that's vulnerable? Who doesn't like their job? Who needs more money? Who wants to make some cash? And he starts slowly, one by one, asset by asset, recruiting his own team of people to turn in the war that are on the Patriot side, but that when the British come and the British finally invade, are going to reveal their true intentions and show that they're actually working on the British side. He was able to- and he's amazing at it. He recruited a mole inside the Continental Congress. Or they he put a mole in the Continental Congress. He has, he has, he literally has, and it's, and it's not only a mole that it, it's someone, it's someone so perfect that you could use that person to. I don't want to reveal who it is because it's obvious. It's a lower level person that's perfectly situated to overhear everything. It's exactly what you would say is the perfect asset today, like picking the butler of the, you know, of of the guy you're spying on. Um, and, the, and, you know, the, the, the assistant that knows and hears everything. And he gets it right inside, and we have no idea what's flying. And it's, 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 it's dumb luck after dumb luck, and then eventually hard work that starts paying off. But what to me is so great about Tryon is that it works. It actually works. And we love to tell the story, as you said, that, you know, the British are the bad guy and America's the good guy. And we just dreamed about the democracy. We all had a shared dream. We held hands together and uh, life is grand. We win the war and everyone lives happily ever after. And, you know, we're a country that, that loves legends and myths. We're founded on legends and myths. And the legends and myths that we love most are our own. And it was never that simple. At the time, uh, in 1776, there were nearly as many loyalists on the British side in New York City as there were patriots on the American side. And it was the same in our own military. You know, our own military wasn't all dreaming of democracy. You know, people like, oh, there were young people who signed up to fight in the revolution because it was such a great cause. And because we paid them. 
There were old men who signed up because it was such a good cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because also we were paying them. And even in the old military, even our own military, you had the, the regiments from Massachusetts and the regiments, you know, were fighting with the regiments from Virginia or fighting with the regiments from Connecticut. There's a scene in Harvard Yard in, in the first conspiracy where you see um, the regiments from Massachusetts pick a fight with the guys from Virginia. They don't like their uniforms. We're not even wearing the same uniforms, right? Some guys are showing up in dress shirts. But they make fun of the Virginians' frilly uniforms. Fight breaks out. George Washington comes racing in, leaps off his horse, grabs two of the guys, and is shaking them. He's basically like, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. And if ever there were a metaphor for where we are today, there it is. But for William Tryon, as we all know, that what that moment is and what, what, those, what our troops are to him, they're an opportunity. Any spy listening, you know that's an opportunity. And just like then and just like today, no one wants to be on the losing team. So when it looks like the British may have the upper hand, when it looks like, you know what, we don't have any, much gunpowder on the American side, on the Patriot side, we don't, have, uh, we don't have shoes in the winter, and you're not being paid your, your fee, and you don't have the weapons you want, and you see the British have all of this stuff and more, guess what? There are plenty of people who are willing to switch teams and try and take full advantage of it. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. as you point out that there's there's really nothing that they're fighting for at this point there's no stated goal if you want another analogy between now and then is that this is pre-declaration of independence this is not a fight for independence yet these are just people fighting for who the hell knows like you said for money and some people are fighting because they don't like taxes and other things there's no raw right and then, and and the thing that's amazing and and I think Dave McCullough has it right he says that 30% of Americans at the time didn't want british rule um and wanted to be free another 30% though really didn't care about democracy they just didn't, they were happy to be under the king they just wanted a better deal they wanted to pay less in taxes they just saw it as a trade issue and you know what negotiate a better deal so we don't pay as much from our pocketbook and we'll live with the king and then another 30% this thing, Karen, was ambivalent. It took a long time for democracy as an idea to fire up and take hold, but it ain't that in 1776. It's just not. And when, you, when you're not fighting for a stated goal, as you know in the military all the time, it, it burns us to this moment today, um, you have a problem. You have a problem with morale. You have a problem with your mission. And you have an opportunity for your enemies. We talked about Tryon being the governor of New York, but we kind of—I kind of skipped over the idea of trying to discuss why New York was so important. I mean, I think we look at New York City today, of course, as being an incredibly important city, important port city, 
but maybe it was more important to the broader colonies even back in 1776. It really was ground zero for the British if they had if they had any hope of defeating the colonies. Yeah, and the reason is, you know, we, we always associate when it comes to the start of the Revolutionary War, we, you know, we love to talk about Massachusetts and Lexington and Concord. We talk about Philadelphia, of course, for the Continental Congress. And they kind of always take the spotlight. But the reality is, is ground zero, as you said, was New York City. And it was there because, um, well, one, uh, obviously, you had the British were coming there. But the reason that they picked to come there, we, we should discuss, is because if you seize New York, uh, and it's hard to do this without a map, but you can look at the two waterways that kind of run up. And if you take those and control those ports, you basically split the colonies in half. You totally divide them. You get New York and you divide. Uh, and, and, and listen, the Brits were better at that strategy. When, when the British finally arrive and the Battle of Brooklyn takes place, uh, we don't win the day. and We're not some ragtag group that comes together and we all love each other. We get our butts kicked. George Washington gets out general. He doesn't have the experience that the British generals have. Um, and what happens is he has this moment where he's pinned down. He's got the British in front of him. He's got the East River behind them. And this is the end. This should be the end of George Washington's life. It should all fall apart there. And, and maybe, you know, a lesser commander, you know, might, might have said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take as many of these guys as we can with them. We're going to rush forward and attack. We're going to go out in a blaze of glory. We're going to show them what's well. We're going to beat, beat your chest and show what a macho guy you are. But there's nothing manly about doing something stupid like that. George Washington instead, in that moment, does the best thing he always does. Is he adapts and he improvises and he plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And in the middle of the night, he commandeers every boat they can find along the East River and takes all these boats. You know, a fog rolls in like by divine providence itself. And one by one, he starts putting his men aboard these boats to sail them away to safety across the water. But here's the key moment is George Washington himself won't get on board any of the boats until his men get aboard first and are safely away, even the lowest ranking man. And they see him risking his life for theirs. And not that that's the magic moment that brings everyone together. There are plenty before and plenty after. But we do have to remember that there was no United States back then. George Washington helped build it. And he did it by putting his arms around all this chaos and bringing it together. And it, make no mistake, it, it was total chaos. When, when the war started, when, when in 1776, when the British come and invade New York, 10,000 troops on our side come to fight and meet the British. And all the wealthy people who were in New York at the time, they leave. They're like, I'm out of here. I don't want to be part of this war. But on, the, on our side, 10,000 troops do what 10,000 men do you know, to this day when you leave them alone and there's no one around and there's no rules or regulations. They start gambling. They start drinking. They want to go see prostitutes. And George Washington is horrified by this. He's a proper Virginian gentleman. And he, again, has to, you know, you can look at his general orders of the day, which are the rules that he's making. You know, there's no rules even in the military back then because he's building them one by one, day by day, order by order. And you can see some of those earliest ones are stop gam no gambling. And he's like, stop drinking, stop going to prostitutes. You know, I mean, good rules to live by. Um, but he's the one who takes all this chaos and kind of wills it to happen. And he does it. You know, not because he's the greatest thinker, because they're smarter men, not because he's the greatest military guy, because they're better of those. 
but he but he does it and the reason i think he becomes the first president is this man of virtue and that's where he's different than everyone else one thing I, i did while i was reading through this was i jotted down intelligence plots or intelligence themes that are throughout this book and everything from things like early lessons of counterinsurgency that Tryon found in North Carolina and then later on in New York and unintended consequences of being heavy handed to things like stay behinds and disinformation. I think the story about the general Schuler disinformation campaign is extraordinary. And then even things like early signals intelligence and mail interception. There's so many elements of what we would consider modern day intelligence in this. Um, were you just amazed to find how advanced, certainly on the British side, mostly this is the British side, except for some of the SIGINT stuff, how advanced British intelligence was that long ago? Uh, listen, there's a reason that, you know, Elmore Leonard said that when you want to write a good book, to paraphrase him, you got to put in the good parts and you take out the parts that people skip over. And to me, the best parts were those parts you just mentioned, right? Seeing all that SIGINT stuff, that's seeing the attack on the mail system, seeing all those things that you know we do today and they're doing it you know almost 250 years ago and doing it brilliantly um you know right down to the you know good old-fashioned culpa ring and the invisible ink tricks um because everyone you know and i love that stuff i mean i remember when i first found that and i found this one years ago i put it i used it i've used it in a couple of thrillers but you know we always think when we're growing up oh yeah invisible ink is like you know you put lemon juice and you you know you put some uh you, you, you know, you light a match underneath it and, and then you can reveal the secret code. That's a terrible invisible ink formula because anyone who has a match can crack your code. And what George Washington started doing is he, they created this thing called the sympathetic stain, which was a terrible name, but a great idea. It was they used an agent and a reagent. So I'd write a letter to you in what they called the agent. You would then put the reagent on it. And then you could see and the letters would bloom to life on the letter. Um, but that way it was a chemical process. And if you didn't have both sides of the chemical, you couldn't crack the code. That is friggin' genius. In fact, the guys, my friends who work in the agency today told me that they use a variation of that old culpering code to this very day sometimes that's still, you know, known throughout the lore there as being like just this amazing thing. And obviously it's been improved on and changed and God knows we're even using invisible ink anymore. But I love the fact that this thing is so cutting edge at a time when, the word cutting edge is, you know, you would never think to use it there. And, and you see it, as you said, over and over again, right down to try on, you know, gutting uh, people in this insurgency and having it blow up in his face. You can just see we always can find what we need in the past. It's, it's always there staring us in the face. And, I just, and there's nothing like seeing George Washington himself do it. Well, it's wonderful to talk about familiar relations. It was John Jay's brother, James, who actually designed the sympathetic stain. He was the one that came up. Yeah. You know what? I forgot that you're right about that. He does. He is. A, it is. I mean, what a family, right? Crushing it. <laughs> yeah. About as good as it comes. I mean, as far as an intelligence family, you can think of the Dulleses and others. But let's get to the meat of the argument. The idea of killing George Washington. We, you mentioned the idea that there's no declaration of independence yet. There's no real central kind of idea that all these people are fighting for. But really, it becomes Washington himself. I, you know, we can kind of think in hindsight about, dang, we'd lose our first president and the general of the army, but it's hard. I mean, I hate counterfactuals and, and, and the what ifs, but in this case, it's not hard to say that if Washington is killed or captured, the revolution probably fails. Yeah, you know, it, what's amazing to me is, you know, you can, and we can, of course, easily argue, 
you know, do we win the war? Uh, people can argue yes. People can argue no. Does he become pre – do we have a presidency? You can argue yes. You can argue no. But here's the one thing I know is – and this is where I think history does actually change – is I don't think George Washington's greatest accomplishment is winning the Revolutionary War or even being the first president. I think his greatest accomplishment is what happens after the war is won because he was so popular – at that time, that he could have easily been America's first king. They would have easily voted for him to be the first king of America. And instead, you know, King George in England says, what's George Washington doing now that the war is over and he's won? And painter Benjamin West says, he's going home. And what King George supposedly says is, if, if he does that, he's going to be the greatest man who ever lived. And that's exactly what George Washington does. And he does it again after his second term. He could have had a third term or a fourth term as president. But instead, he decides to have faith in us as a people, faith in us as a country. And that's where I think, you know, could you find another commander to win and to battle? Uh, yes. But my God, are we ever going to find someone who faced with all that power if we did win and would walk away from it and not seize it all and not make himself the monarch here? Um, it takes a, a very different level of values to do that. And I think, uh, but I, and I'll go even down the path. Of, I still don't know if we win the war. But even if we do, I just think, you know, no question American history looks very different if that happens, if, if Washington is, is taken out. He, he, he may have one of those books he ordered right before the, he took command. He may have read about Cincinnati and decided to emulate that uh, as he decided to walk away. Um, what, what I found interesting also was the there is this back and forth, certainly, between was it a plot to kill Washington or to kidnap Washington or, you know, to capture him? The problem you run into and you, you, you know, very wisely admit this and i gave you a lot of credit for that is there's very little of the investigation itself that's on the record you know they, they have these secret committees they, they bring all these witnesses in front of them and, and the book really lays it out well it kind of becomes like a courtroom drama in many cases but the need to maintain secrecy means it's very hard for us to know exactly what was being plotted and the plot spoils so we never actually see what they're going to do but it was very important to me that we never say this is what was going to happen. I could do that. It'll be far more titillating. I'll probably sell more books if we did that. But it's not right. And it was very vital to me that we get it right. And we say very clearly, we know there were some that said it was a plot to kill Washington. Um, and let's just talk about the plot for a moment. The plan was is when the British invaded that the signal was going to be given and those who were secretly working on the British side were going to switch sides on, in our army, blow up uh, some bridges, steal our cannons, and some said they were going to kill Washington right there, assassinate him. Others argued that they were going to, know, they were going to kidnap him. Um, one of the things we found out is at the lower level, if they kidnapped you, it became, uh, it was actually, you got exchanged. There was a, an exchange of prisoners. So we'd say, here's your guy, give us our guy back. But at Washington's level, when it got to that higher level, there was no exchange of prisoners. You got hanged. So either case, Washington's life is potentially in danger. Um, I actually personally was, it was hard to believe either of them. The thing that really convinced me, and I don't want to ruin it, but you'll see it in the book, is what one of the plotters of the conspiracy does years after the war when he goes back to the British and he's looking for his pension. That was the piece of information where I said, there's no reason to do that and admit to that. And, and again, I don't want to ruin it because I think it's just such the fun part of the ending, but I do think you're exactly right that we, we really wanted to be careful about what we could say we knew definitively. And there's no way anyone knows definitively, because as you said, it's all spy work. 
It's all meant to be silent. Um, and, and, you know, we have people already who are arguing with us and saying, you know, some guys said, you know, you said it could be this way or this way, but I know it's this way. And I'm like, listen, we acknowledge we have our theory. We give you all the proof and all the evidence of why we think it's right. And I, and I stand by it. I just love that there are people out there who, who literally think that they know exactly what happened in someone's brain in 1776 in, in a way that you could possibly never, ever know with, with definity. Um, everything becomes a theory. And, uh, and it leaves us to kind of fill in the question marks. Uh, but that is obviously the joy of writing this book, is trying to pull apart as much information. And as you said, where it cracked open for us was when we were able to find that transcript of the secret committee where they tried the man who got hanged. Because unlike a letter or even the witnesses that watched the hanging who were just, you know, they're just witnesses and, and, and they don't know what they're seeing. It just becomes like watching Twitter, like everyone's reacting in different ways. When you have that tribunal, there's people being sworn in, there's witnesses, and more important, there's a transcript. And once you've got that transcript, you have an official record, and, and now you're in business. Well, we can, we can also debate the idea of how much impact this had on Washington, but I think there's a correlation causality argument that we can have. But it's hard to argue that Washington did not shift his beliefs in the importance of intelligence and counterintelligence soon after this plot was discovered. I mean, you look at, again, everything from Nathan Hill to the Culper Ring and everything in between. Oh, it all starts right after this. It all, I, I, that's what I said. I don't care what anyone says. You can, you know, you may not know what's in his brain, but to me, it's always in what your actions are. And right after all of this happens, um, suddenly he starts at every level fighting back in the counterintelligence movement. It's an incredible, like, as you said, Nathan Hale, the Culper Ring, and in ones that I, I'm thoroughly convinced we'll never have ever heard of that are still out there and we don't even know they exist. Let me, let me end with this, and you may not be able to say anything about it, because you've certainly done TV shows in the past. We already talked about lost history. This book and this story seems tailor-made for a movie or a TV series. I don't know if that's happening. You can't talk about it, uh, but it certainly would be something that would be obvious to be dramatized in that way. Uh, I hope so, man. Uh, it, it, we have a lot of fun with it, and we're obviously talking to people right now trying to figure it out. But that is not, you know, when we did this, it was never the goal was like, hey, we want to make a, a movie and we're going to use a book to do it. Um, the beauty of doing this as a book is you can do that in-depth stuff you can't do when you do a TV show. The TV show will give you the secret plot to kill them. But what the book gives you, as you said, is the birth of the counterintelligence movement. It gives you the depth of George Washington's character. It shows you what leadership looks like at a time, especially today, where we need and are starving, whatever your politics are, um, you know, whatever side you're on. I feel like we're a country that's really starving for, for heroes again. And I think it's no coincidence that people like George Washington become fascinated again, because I'm personally tired of, uh, you know, what we do in our culture today is we pay attention to those who are good at calling attention to themselves. Um, those who say, look at me, and whether it's on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or anywhere else, you know, who write with double exclamation points in all caps and say, you know, look at me, look at me. I, I would much rather have uh, a man of humility or a woman of humility and modesty and hard work. Those values are far more important to me. And I think someone like George Washington represents them beautifully. So when you read this book, you, you can't help but look where we are today and say, and see what he did with a divided country in 1776 and see what we're doing with one today. I think you hit it on the head earlier in the podcast when you said that what makes Washington even more heroic is that he is a human being. 
he's got fears and he's got faults and he's got, he makes mistakes and all the things that you can't look up to somebody who's perfect. He was this kind of like this ideal legend. You have a guy here. He's a man who, who doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And to me, that makes him even. And I, yeah. And I think, and I think that's one of the things that, that is changing about actually how we report on our history. You know, we used to, History used to kind of sell that, that image of that lantern-jawed guy standing on the boat crossing the Delaware. That's what we wanted to sell. And whether it was a whitewashed version because we did it on purpose as propaganda or whether it's just that we want what we want to believe. You know, heroes are always mirrors. We hold them up and you see what you want to see. And I think it's actually very interesting right now that we, it's not that we're trying to take the heroes down and make them human and, and, and crap on them. I actually think that what we're trying to do is understand how we can be more like them. And when we show you, you know, if, if it's all easy for Washington, he does it all in a day's work and, it, and he's just the best. I'm not interested because it's easy. I'm far more interested when it's hard, right? That's the battle that's always worth fighting, the one that's hard. And I love that when you read the first conspiracy that you really get to see just how hard it was for him and what he was facing because then his accomplishments are so much more amazing. Well, the book is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. The author is very well known, Brad Meltzer, uh, but this is not a novel. Uh, this is a nonfiction book full of history that you probably don't know. And I think that for our listeners, that's, that's usually their ears perk up when they, when they find out that there's something out there that maybe they haven't heard a lot about. I highly recommend this. It's wonderfully, I mean, if you've read Brad before, you know that he's, he's a writer that's easy to read, uh, but this is a well-researched history book. Uh, that I think really amazingly has just chock full of intelligence themes uh, and things that you'll recognize today. So, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today on SpyCast. No, thank you. And, and I can tell you, you know I love the museum. I've been there. I can't wait to see all the new stuff you're building. Well, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.